Hello and welcome to episode six of the Science and or Fiction podcast. I'm Taylor Sloan. And I'm Lucas Moore. So we're finally at episode six. Yeah. And it's, uh, uh, it's, it's the one that comes right after the fifth one and probably right before the seventh one. We'll see. Uh, barring you know, some sort of unforeseen mathematical catastrophe. The sponsors have uh, been very adamant that we drastically increase the quality uh, in the next episode. So uh, hopefully this, this is to their liking and by sponsors. <laughs> Again, I mean, we don't have any and uh, the quality is it's just fine. You know, it's okay. Mm -hmm. It's not great. It's not bad. It's just it's just fine. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, we've had, uh, you know, a lot of people listening and, and I've had some compliments and things like that. So thank you very much for everybody that's been listening. If you haven't been listening yet, uh, then I may not actually be talking to you because you're not listening. <laughs> but if this is your first time listening, <clears throat> thank you for listening to the Science and or Fiction podcast. Uh, if you're listening to us on SoundCloud or on scienceandorfiction.com, you can go to iTunes and the Google Play Store and download... Uh, or subscribe and download to Science and or Fiction Podcast. Uh, you can also find us, again, on SoundCloud if you prefer not to download us on your podcasting platform of choice. We can also be found on various social media outlets. We are at Facebook, uh, and you can search for Science and or Fiction. And we are on Twitter, at Sci and or Fi. I think our Facebook URL is facebook.com forward slash Sci and or Fi. We're also working on a YouTube channel that we're going to have some stuff coming up on, and hopefully in the next month or so, uh, we're going to be launching a Patreon channel. We'll have more about that when we finally get around to it. But as always, you can email us, scienceandorfiction at gmail.com, and for past episodes and a place to catch up with us, go to scienceandorfiction.com. Lucas, we have some follow-up today. Yeah, so last week we discussed uh, extensively Star Trek Discovery, the next uh Star Trek TV show that will be coming out here relatively soon, and we had uh, a one bit of news come out um, in the in the weeks intervening that Jonathan Frakes, uh, better known as uh, Commander Riker from Star Trek: The Next Generation, right. is going to be directing at least one episode of right. the first season of Star Trek: Discovery. And if I may, also very briefly, Captain Riker. Briefly, Captain Riker. That is true. Yeah. The best of both uh, worlds was a dark time. Oh, yes, it was. But we made it through that. Um, mm -hmm. We made it through the other side. And uh, speaking of uh, follow-ups to The Best of Both Worlds, Jonathan Frakes, uh, pretty famous for directing Star Trek First Contact, which is arguably the best. So it's definitely the best of the Next Generation series films. I mean, yes. you know, I, I would hazard to say that it's kind of apples and oranges with the wrath of Khan, you know yeah i think that there are movies very much tos people who love the wrath of Khan, and i love the wrath of Khan. i think it's a fantastic movie in the star trek universe i also think that first contact for different reasons but i think in a lot of ways it kind of was tng's the wrath of Khan. you know it brought back mm -hmm. the borg uh they came after you know um captain picard and Mm -hmm. and uh, there was a sense of resentment and animosity from previous interactions there. But Jonathan Frakes has also directed many episodes of The Next Generation and of Voyager and Deep Space Nine, but we wanted to take a quick look uh, and remind you all of some of the episodes of The Next Generation that he has directed. So first one uh, on the list. Uh, yeah, so the, the first one... 
Um, he directed The Offspring, which was a relatively early um, episode of The Next Generation, where Data has, uh, well, an offspring. Yeah, so, so it, it, it's a, some of you will remember he, uh, Data has always been trying to understand his uh, reality as an android, and to help do that, he created a, another Soong-type android named Lol. And uh, it didn't quite work out perfectly and it was a little bit of a tearjerker of an episode yeah uh but a great episode so second one that uh, is on here reunion uh reunion is uh kind of our introduction to um a little bit more about what happens in the klingon empire in the tng era and the introduction of uh commander Worf's son uh alexander and uh, there's, again, some very uh, emotional overtones in this episode about family and, and uh, you know, nationality and things like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so then another episode that uh, John Fricks directed was The Drumhead, yes. um, which is a great episode of The yes. Next Generation. It's kind of a, like, maybe not a courtroom drama, um, but there's kind of a conspiracy going on, and there's... Um, you know, there's a lot of, I don't know, stuff going on behind the scenes, and it's all very tense. And ha- it finishes with um, quite, uh, quite a monologue um, that, well, in relation to uh, political events going on, you might have actually seen a clip of that going around um, <laughs> relatively recently. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Um, and and there's there's. Uh yeah, there there are a lot of. I mean, some of these are really great episodes. A couple that are terrible, but this is definitely. I think now that I'm starting mm-hmm. to remember more of this episode, it is absolutely my probably my favorite out of all of these. But uh, let's see, oh, episode wow. number four is cause and effect, and this is one uh, where the Enterprise is trapped in a kind of a feedback loop. Yeah, this one is this one's great. Um, this one gets uh i don't know it involves the uh the crew of the enterprise sort of communicating with themselves in uh in in other uh, other iterations of this time loop and uh, gets very very complicated very very quickly um and directing this episode in particular gives me a lot of faith in jonathan frakes to direct very complex uh episodes very very well Right, and I, that was actually something I was just thinking about too when we talked about this ad nauseum in the last episode. So I'm not going to bring it up too much, but when we're talking about kind of the serialized uh, plan for Star Trek Discovery, keeping that up in such a way that it is compelling is something that I had a concern about. And considering you know that Jonathan Frakes directed this episode, and hopefully we'll direct several of the episodes that tie a lot of the stuff together in Discovery, I have very high uh hopes now for that uh another episode quality of life uh this is the one with the the little hovering robots that might be alive uh the exocomps and i don't remember exactly all of the details to this is there anything i'm missing um yeah that's that's basically the 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 crucial bit of the episode where um data is kind of remembering back from when he was kind of put on trial for his uh, sentience or humanity or whatever and um you know tries to validate the uh the 
I don't know what to say humanity of these robots, but they're uh, you know sentience. They're maybe even they're, above that, like sapience to a certain yeah. extent of, of of because I think if I remember correctly, in one of the episodes, one of the exocomps refuses to go into a dangerous situation, mm-hmm. and the doctor who created the exocomps is. Um, you know, unhappy that her machines aren't doing their job and data is, you know, indicating that it may be that because they have a feeling of wanting to survive that they're not putting themselves in a dangerous situation. So that's mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily something that's topical yet. And uh, I'm sure at some <laughs> point in our future will be now is probably maybe the last of the, the really good episodes here well that's not true attached mm. is pretty good but chase talk about the chase yeah the chase so this is a this is a really big i don't want to say it's a big retcon episode um because uh, there's there's a lot of i don't know whatever the star wars uh fictional history that that comes into play here but uh basically this is an episode where a lot of scientists from across the different factions that are controlling bits of the universe um have to kind of come together and work together on a big scientific problem and it ends uh well part of the way through um, there's a lot of different conflict in between the scientists and kind of there's political implications but in the end it turns out that the reason that all of the uh the species in the star trek universe all happen to have two arms and two legs and a head and usually you know a nose and ears or whatever and look like um you know, just regular people with a bunch of prosthetics on. <clears throat> Turns out that the uh, the progenitor there's like this progenitor race that basically seeded their genetic material to the galaxy, and uh, that's why we all look like them. Mm. You know, the aliens don't all look like humans. We all look like the progenitor race. Right, and that I would call that retconning. But I think as far as retconning goes, they did a really good job, and it was a compelling mm-hmm. episode, which I liked. Definitely yeah. nowhere near as uh, the the quality, the terrible quality of like the retconning in Star Trek Enterprise as to why <laughs> in the original series Klingons looked a lot more like angry humans with dark skin, <laughs> uh, which is just so horrifyingly racist. Uh, and they tried to explain that as some sort of um, biological genetic disease, and it's it was it was terrible. Like yeah. they should have just left that alone and let let it be mm-hmm. awful that it happened. Uh, so the next episode, two left of the Jonathan Frakes episodes, uh, just to give you guys an idea. Uh, attached. I didn't remember all of the details of this. I haven't seen this one probably as many times as I've seen others, but essentially, uh, Captain Picard and Doctor Crusher uh, kind of become attached through some sort of brain implants and they uh they were held captive and and the context of the episode is um they had uh you know it was about their emotions towards each other and their feelings towards each other and that that you know kind of this whole like what could have been with some sort of feelings between them and things there was a lot to it emotionally mm-hmm. but it was a very well directed episode in terms of the interplay between i think gates mcfadden and patrick stewart and how they played off each other which was always great and in this episode in particular having you know their primary co-star uh jonathan frakes direct i think really went a long way towards creating mm-hmm. a good episode and last 
and probably least <laughs> is Sub Rosa Lucas. I don't oh, remember, man. and I think probably because I've blocked this out of my brain. Yeah. Uh, because it, it's so bad. But talk to us about Sub Rosa. Yeah. So Sub Rosa was an episode in the last, uh, the last season of the Next Generation. And it was really bad. Um, it involved Dr. Crusher, um, and she she goes to a funeral of a of a distant relative, her, or I guess her grandmother, and it turns out that her grandmother had a lover, and this lover apparently hasn't aged in quite some time, and it turns out that this lover is uh, a ghost being that I kind of draws life energy from people or something i i honestly don't really get the plot of this episode too much um of course then um crusher you know falls for this corporeal being uh of course uh, yeah let's i'd rather not talk about this one too much Um, Uh, this is not a great episode it does not bear much talking about. Suffice to say that I, I was trying to jog my memory on this because I have seen every episode of The Next Generation multiple times, mm-hmm. and which is not <laughs> something that I would typically say uh, as a form of bragging except in this context. But I, I was looking at the Memory Alpha, which is the Star Trek wiki, wiki and down in the episode description <laughs> as it's going through this, there's just this picture that's captioned and it's so hilarious and I don't remember the context of it and I'm not going to read the context of it because I like it on its own and it's just this picture and the caption is dense fog rolls into the bridge and it's commander data standing at his console or standing by his console with a tricorder in his hand and captain Picard is in the turbo lift by his ready room and there's just (laughs) no explanation there's fog on like hanging on the ground by it's just it it stand this caption stands on its own merits this picture stands on its own merits and and the episode does not need to be involved at all and i'm i'm already sold yeah. um, the uh, the wikipedia page for this particular episode says that uh, in 2016 fans at the 50th anniversary star trek convention voted sub rosa as the sixth worst episode of any star trek series Wow. And that includes all of Enterprise. So, <laughs> right, I I would imagine episodes one through five are episodes of Enterprise. Uh, uh, God, it maybe, some... and only because of the theme song. If they'd gotten rid of the theme song, all right, that so, would have increased the quality of the show, probably I, five or sixfold. I am currently watching through Enterprise. Uh, just you know, a, an episode here and there before I go to bed or something. And right. net, and I had read uh, that if that a little while ago Netflix had instituted a feature where you could press a button and it would skip the intro to whatever show you were watching. Oh. Now it didn't work on every episode or every yeah. show, but it worked on some shows. And I thought, oh, I don't have to hear about how it's been a long road. And uh, yeah, it's not available for Enterprise, and Ugh. I get to listen to the sappy late 90s or nope nope that's really that's how bad it is it's i think it was performed by nickelback i don't know if that's true (laughs) at all and i have no information that i'm basing that on but i want to spread that rumor that the star trek enterprise intro was performed (laughs) written and performed in its entirety by nickelback in all of its iterations uh that's a theory, and we can we can go with that. Um, let me ask anyway. you, let me ask a quick question yeah, to anybody sure. who's listening to the oh. podcast. Please comment on Twitter, Facebook, or whatever on the episode show notes. If you don't mute 
during the intro when you're watching an episode <laughs> of Enterprise. Because if you don't, A, I don't Why? believe you, but B, I, I want to know if there's anybody who doesn't. And if so, what is your reason? Why mm-hmm. do you want that in your life? So my personal reason is that I always turn it up really loudly so that Erica has to listen to it too. Okay, and that's fair. she rolls yeah. her eyes. Yeah, and that's perfectly, that's, that's actually, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> I have not watched it with my significant other. And uh, I've already made her, so I, we mentioned this off the podcast, we're watching Firefly, which I also think has kind of a tacky theme song. Mm. Great show. Yeah. Terrible-ish theme song. Yeah. Uh, and but she hasn't rolled her eyes at that, so I'm doing something right, right I guess. Uh, okay, so that finishes up that. Yeah, uh, so that the, section back to the topic up. at hand. Basically, Jonathan Frakes is directing at least one episode of the first season of Star Trek Discovery. He has directed many good episodes and some not as good episodes of of the Next Generation. He's also directed some uh, Deep Space Nine and Voyager episodes. He's apparently also directing an episode of the Orville, which is Seth MacFarlane's Star Trek spoof that's coming out in a similar time frame. Um, I have a lot of uh, faith in his ability to direct well, and uh, hopefully at least one episode of Discovery will be uh, re- you know, reasonably good. Right, and it will be interesting to see who else, if there's any other name, or if there are any other names that they add to the list of directors and uh, what that could mean for the potential uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Okay. So then, uh, so our first, our first main topic, um, for, for this, uh, for this episode is I wanted to talk about this, um, kind of a science topic here. Um, there was a a story that came out a couple weeks ago and I most, I first saw this in Ars Technica, um, about a geostationary satellite that apparently is having, uh, having some mechanical problems or, um, maybe worse than mechanical problems. Right. I think the uh, the uh, the article title on Ars Technica said something about it falling apart in geostationary orbit. Yes. So a little bit of background. Um, there's a company that's based in Luxembourg called SES. I don't know what it stands for. I, it might not even be English. Um, but in mid-June, they uh, stated they had lost control of the satellite the satellite was um, launched, like, I think it was 2002 or 2003, and it was supposed to have, like, a 15-year life, and so it's getting t- kind of towards the end of its life anyway. Um, but they lost control of it, and there's a company called ExoAnalytic, and their whole business model is they do um, ground-based telescope um, tracking of stuff in the sky. And they pointed their telescopes at it and found a bunch of pieces of stuff um, around where that satellite was supposed to be, which is a really bad sign if you spent millions of dollars on a rocket launch putting a satellite up into orbit that you need to communicate with. Right. Um, So people were, you know, trying to figure out what happened, why you might have lost control of this thing, why it might be in pieces. Um, And as of... Uh, the 1st of July, the company has um, put out a press release saying that they have regained contact with the satellite and they can send it some rudimentary commands, but the main communication payload is disabled and uh, the satellite is currently drifting in its orbit. Hmm. So the point of a geostationary orbit is that it goes around the Earth one time for every rotation of the Earth. So it's a, a 24-hour orbit and it's a particular... Uh, orbit characteristic or there's a certain height um, that you, if you're at it's a it's a geostationary orbit 
And the satellite is actually, if you look at its ground track, it's actually drifting westward. Um, so it's in a slightly lower orbit than it should be, um, which means some sort of propulsive event happened, and uh, it's it's a lot lower than it should be. So what what kind of things could have caused that? I mean, to stay in geostationary orbit, would a satellite have to have thrusters, I would assume? Uh, could that have misfired or... Um you know, what, so, what kind of things could have caused this? Yeah, so geostationary orbit is is a pretty stable orbit as far as orbits go. Um, mm-hmm. Low Earth orbit satellites have to worry actually quite a bit about the upper atmosphere dragging them down a bit. Right. Um, as in tenuous as the atmosphere is, it, it's still a thing. Um, geostationary orbits don't really have to worry about that. They don't also have to worry about the weird kind of lumpy bits of Earth, Earth's gravity as much. Mm-hmm. Um they can get pulled out of sync by the moon sometimes, um, yeah. very slightly. So they do have thrusters on board to kind of correct those types of things. But it looks like, I think the the main, my, my guess would be uh, that they had a battery failure and mm. uh, a battery short, you know, they had a short inside of a battery and it blew up. Ah, uh, well, that would definitely cause an issue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh yeah, I mean, and this is a communications satellite. I actually just looked, uh, SES stands for, man, I don't speak French at all, but I it, these are all <laughs> cognates, so I'm assuming uh, this is corrected. It's uh, Society or European Society for Satellites. It's, um, oh, oh man, okay. this is going to sound terrible. Societe uh, Europeenne des Satellites. I don't know how to pronounce satellites <laughs> in French, but it's... European Society for Satellites is what, and it's mm-hmm. a it's a communication satellite um, company. That's what they do. So, right. would this cause any? Uh, does it say anything about this causing any effect in terms of its overall job in what I would assume is a network of communication satellites and ground stations? Yeah. So SES, they and this is not their only satellite. They have tons of satellites in orbit, and so they can um, relatively easy move a few around to kind of um, pick up the slack. Um, the main thing that people were worried about is orbital debris um, and orbital debris becoming a big problem where if one satellite blows up, if it creates, let's say, two pieces and each of those pieces hits another satellite or it's and those two, yes, so you get something that's um, referred to as Kessler syndrome where ah. uh, some I, some NASA scientists back in the 70s came up with this idea that it might be possible that in Earth orbit, you could have collisions that create more collisions that create more collisions. It cascades, and it makes it impossible to actually stay in space for too long. Hmm. And that would be a really big problem. Are there enough objects? I think there are... I mean, I would imagine there are, at this point, between satellites and, and other debris and stuff, there are probably thousands of objects in geostationary orbit around the Earth. Is there a real possibility that that could happen with this? Well, there there are tons and tons of things in geostationary orbit. Um, it, there, you can actually there's some websites that you can look at kind of a real time image or map of almost everything that we know is in space right now, and you can see this cloud. Uh, not really so much a cloud; it's more like a ring that goes around the Earth at a particular altitude, and it's all the geostationary satellites. And Yes, there's always the possibility that something like this could happen, but uh, geostationary orbit is pretty far out, and the relative speeds are relatively low compared to low Earth orbit, right. and so I think there's less of a chance of this kind of um, ca- catastrophic event, um, you know, getting getting out of control. 
Right, and because it is what? Uh, oh gosh, that'd be more, well. Um, let me see, thirty-six thousand kilometers, right? Yeah, uh, above Earth's surface would be geostationary space. What chance is there that any material could be forced down into low Earth orbit and potentially affect satellites in low Earth orbit or even things like the International Space Station? Mm. Um, there's, a, I mean, there's always the chance. Um, so when you're in space, the rules of, uh, Newtonian mechanics rule. Um, and so if you, you know, you have to worry about equal and opposite reactions. So if you have, um, a piece of debris that flies off in one direction with a particular momentum, you have to have that momentum balanced somehow, which means that another piece of debris is going to fly off in the opposite direction. And so there theoretically could be a piece of debris that gets, um, flung, uh, inward, at a rate that causes it to interact with low earth orbit or even hit the atmosphere. Again, that's uh that's a lot of a lot of uh energy, a lot of impulse right. to put on a piece of debris. So I don't I doubt that's going to happen, but Well, again, and I can't imagine any of any pieces of anything man-made at least in geostationary orbit would survive a high enough speed. Like high, the, whatever amount of of acceleration would be required to force something not only forward or uh, you know along the the plane of geostationary orbit but down into let's say low earth orbit and then down into the atmosphere whatever acceleration and speed it reaches when it hits the atmosphere i would assume would be so fast and with such uh, a tremendous amount of drag when it hits the atmosphere that it would uh it would probably break up in the atmosphere in the upper atmosphere you wouldn't have to worry about things you know, you wouldn't have to worry about a big chunk of satellite falling on your house. <laughs> no. I would hope. No, I, I think that anything that would cause uh, any event that's like a short event, like an explosion, um, if that's going to give something enough energy that it could deorbit, uh, that thing is, is in very, very small pieces. Right, right. Microscopic, probably. And yeah. burnt to crisp, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, but also, I mean, that's a, not good for our satellites. So, I mean... Is there a possibility that something we don't know about in geostationary orbit could have hit this satellite? Maybe. Cause this. So one thing that I saw was that this might be some sort of uh, weapons test. <laughs> that something might be up there that's specifically a satellite killer. Um, and the idea of a satellite killer is not new. Uh, no, I was going to say most modern, like most large nations with massive militaries have anti-satellite missiles. Mm-hmm. Um, so an anti-satellite missile is, is definitely a, uh, it's one way of taking out a satellite. Pretty much only works in low Earth orbit, and you have to be really, really precise with the uh, the targeting because the relative velocity is very, very high. Um, right. Orbital speed is, you know, seven and a half kilometers per second, and unless you're in orbit, you're going to, you know, the satellite's going to fly by. Right. Um, very easy. If you're going to do a, yeah. If you're going to do a geostationary satellite killer, you could just put a satellite in geostationary orbit and put a gun on it and uh, just <laughs> fly it around. And again, the the velocities are much, uh, the relative velocities are much lower. And so you could potentially take out a satellite intentionally. I right. don't think that's what happened here, but no, it doesn't seem like it, this doesn't seem like a you know uh, a military target uh, mm -hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. It seems like a communications satellite that beaming probably soccer. Well, I'm sure over there they call it football, but, uh, you know, somebody, somebody is watching uh, 
somebody is watching uh, Barcelona play Real Madrid, and then all of a sudden they're not. Um, mm-hmm. This was not some military satellite or anything like that, as far as we know. I mean, yeah, uh, and I mean, personally, given the geopolitical situation, I'm very glad it wasn't uh, right. a U.S. or Russian satellite. Right, that would have made things a little bit tense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially if there had been any hint of foul play and that happened. I mean, that would yeah. Be, oh, man. Don't even want to think but, about that. you know, the yeah. idea of a 15-year-old battery that's gone through thousands and thousands and thousands of, of you know, charge and recharge cycles suddenly blowing up, is that's not entirely uh, right. surprising. I mean, Galaxy 7's batteries were brand new, and they blew up in people's pockets. So, <laughs> you know what hasn't done that is my iPhone battery. But Ooh. we decided we weren't going to have an Apple Android, uh, uh, you know, discussion <laughs> on this podcast. So I'll leave it at that. We'll have to have a guest, uh, a, a guest on the on the podcast at some point to have uh, one of those. <laughs> yeah, I think we're both thinking of the same person too. And if he's listening, uh, if he's listening, Justin, you absolutely can come on the podcast. Uh, and argue with us uh we would love that so that's yeah that's interesting we'll have to see uh, keep an eye on this and if anything else develops in this in terms of like that kepler uh reaction or just any kind of um chain reaction cascade effect of of other orbital mm-hmm. objects geostationary orbital objects being um knocked out then that's something we'll 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 follow up on that as well and i would be remiss if i didn't uh uh pitch this uh this book um so the idea of a kessler syndrome is something that you know could happen and and sometimes it's talked about in science fiction if you want to read a really really good sci-fi book about uh, kessler syndrome you should read seven eves um, yes i don't remember when this came out it was a couple of years ago i read yes. this book and neil stevenson w- yeah uh, one of the better sci-fi book. books i've read recently. right and and I remember reading that, and we'll have to talk about this on the podcast. Maybe we'll start a mm-hmm. podcast book club or something like that. But <laughs> this this book, I picked it up. You know, it had been recommended. I listened to another podcast uh, hosted by Adam Savage from the Mythbusters ah, previously. That is where I got the recommendation as well. And I I saw it, and I thought, eh, yeah, Adam Savage thought this was a good book, and everyone, all of his cohorts on the podcast thought it was a good book. And I picked it up, and the first line in the book is, <laughs> the moon exploded suddenly and without warning. And mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I'm going to keep reading this now. But Buckle it is a up. fantastic <laughs> book. It, it spans a huge story arc, and it's just full of incredible, interesting characters, and, and it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. We probably should do a book club on that or something. Yeah. But yes, that is something where the Kessler Syndrome is mentioned, and that is kind of behind. I won't ruin that. We'll, we'll talk about that uh, at mm-hmm. a later date. But, <clears throat> uh, yeah, great book, and this is something we'll keep an eye on. But I don't think this SES satellite is going to cause the uh, the end of... Uh, life on earth as we know it (laughs) i certainly hope not uh we shall see yeah okay so then for the our uh, our second topic today um a couple uh, let's see a couple days ago maybe a week ago as of this recording um some uh downloadable content some dlc came out for a game that i play um the legend of zelda breath of the wild and i'm sorry i'm I'm really looking forward legend of who Legend of, Legend of yeah Zelda. Uh, Zelda's Zelda is the one with the sword, right? Is that um, uh, is that on Sega Genesis? Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, anyway. everybody knows what Legend of Zelda: Breath of the Wild is. It was a fantastic, fantastic. Right. Game. Um. Some so some DLC dropped for that to uh relatively recently, and I haven't played it yet. Um. It's on my to do list. 
but it kind of made me think about all of the other DLC and expansion packs and that sort of um, additional content for games that I've played in the past. And I thought it'd be an interesting uh, thing to talk about here, where there are some expansions, some DLC that really enhance a game or even, you know, help define what's great about a game. Uh, and I think that uh, me and Taylor having slightly different um, gaming experiences growing up, um, maybe there's uh, some overlap between what we think is great and maybe not. Who knows? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I We haven't. I think we should mention we haven't discussed with each other what mm -hmm. our picks for this are. So this is going to kind of be a, a a random chance. There may be some that overlap, and and we may have completely different ones. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think my thinking is if we don't get through all of these, we can always bring this up again in a later episode as a sure. topic and see if we have any further uh, ideas. But uh, yeah, I think there there's there's a distinct possibility that we could have some overlap and. That yeah. having been said, I will let you start since this was your idea. Okay. So mine mine is roughly in, maybe not chronological order, but uh, in the order that I encountered them. So pretty close to chronological order. Okay. Um, but my first DLC, or this was an expansion pack back in the day when you still had to get them on discs, um, was Total Annihilation, The Core Contingency. Uh, yes. um, did you ever play Total Annihilation I, back I in the did. day? I did. I was a huge um, real-time strategy person mm -hmm. um, so yeah this game uh this was you know one of the first uh, the first like top-down rts that i ever encountered and it's it's a huge um kind of an epic sci-fi scale type thing where you have you know hundreds of robots blowing each other up and build a base build units send them at each other and explosions happen and this uh this particular expansion pack um introduced uh, it in introduced some new maps and new units and, and you know some things that you would expect um, from an expansion pack. But the one thing that it introduced that I think really changed the game was it kind of a mega unit that was incredibly expensive but incredibly powerful. And if you could build one, you could rule a big chunk of the battlefield. And this thing was called the Krogoth. Mm. And I remember uh, you know playing this game, um, having a, a bit of primitive networking going on, and uh, playing, you know, with my friends or my brother and uh, <laughs> just, you know, being uh, minding my own business, building my base. And then all of a sudden seeing a Krogoth on the horizon and just just losing it. <laughs> yeah. And that, <laughs> that's 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 a huge that there were always those moments, I think, in real time strategy, whether it was that or like Command and Conquer or Starcraft where you realized you had lost, but it hadn't actually happened yet. And it was just <laughs> this kind of rage quit moment of, oh. Mm-hmm. Crap. Well, this is going to go well. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but to me, uh, Total Annihilation would not be the great game that it is without the Krogoth and that unit um, and the way it balances the game. So uh, to me, that DLC, that expansion pack, um, really helped define uh, that game and made it a lot of fun. Right, right, right. Um, and and I, I have another uh, real-time strategy for my first pick. And I, I actually... Mm -hmm. uh, if nothing else, it's it's funny that we also both I think organized ours in chronological order and probably had a similar approach to preparing for this, <laughs> even if we didn't pick the same games. But mm -hmm. uh, I picked, I had to I had to narrow this down. This took me a while because I have always been a huge Command and Conquer fan <laughs> up until recently, 
and they uh, have made some of my favorite real-time strategy games. And pretty much for every game that they've had since the initial Command and Conquer game, there have been expansion packs that build onto the game, you know, with no new units, new story, new maps. And I had to pick, and it was hard, but I settled on Command and Conquer Red Alert 2, which I think is the best standalone <laughs> of, of the games. And I picked uh, its expansion pack, Yuri's Revenge. <laughs> so Command and Conquer, the whole series, for the most part, has had these ridiculous, campy, live-action cutscenes <laughs> and ridiculous um. military units and stories that are just completely bonkers. Like, the idea behind the Command and Conquer Red Alert storyline is that uh, Albert Einstein travels back in time and kills Adolf Hitler before World War II breaks out. But the uh, the consequences of that are the Soviet Union spreads across Europe and then takes on the United States. And it's totally ridiculous. But the beginning of, of uh, <laughs> Command and Conquer Red Alert 2 is uh, the uh, Soviet invasion of the United States mainland. And it starts with, uh, you know, they're, they're, the nuclear uh, deterrent uh, is taken out by Yuri, uh, the advisor to Premier Romanov, who <laughs> is a psychic and has mind control powers. And he uses his mind control over the telephone to the two like Air Force officers in charge of launching the nuclear weapons, and that prevents that from happening, and so they invade the mainland. And it's just absolutely campy and ridiculous and fun. Um, and also, playing the multiplayer for Command and Conquer has always been super frustrating, but Yuri's Revenge adds a whole new... Um, it was the first time that they added an entirely new playable faction, mm -hmm. uh, and it was Yuri... And his like special psychic uh, military, and it, it was just it was absolutely bonkers. But it was a lot of fun, so that was my uh, my choice for I guess for real time strategy. Uh, you know, my first choice. My my second choice is also Command and Conquer Red Alert Two: Yuri's Revenge. <laughs> okay, all right. I figured well, that might be a place where we had some overlap. <laughs> yep, there it is. Uh, yeah, well, we're both Command and Conquer fans, so that that kind of stood to reason yeah. that that was going to happen. All right, well, I, then, in that case, I mean, you know. Well, I the thing I loved about Yuri's Revenge is that, um, you know, this guy is this psychic uh, warrior, I guess. Um, and my favorite thing to do was there were, uh, you know, most real-time strategy games, you have some sort of a, um, a stationary unit. It's like some sort of defense tower of some sort. It's a, a turret or a gun or whatever. Mm -hmm. And instead, Yuri's faction had these psychic towers where if you had uh, units that would stream towards your base, um, the psychic towers would just, you know, take over the units that were trying to attack you. Right. And they also coupled that with a unit called the grinder, where right. you could take those captured units and send them into the grinder and get resources out of it. Yep. And I don't know why, I just loved that combination. <laughs> yep. It was like the ultimate insult to your opponent. Mm -hmm. that when they would rush you, if you had enough psychic towers, you could capture most all of their units and just march them right into the grinder. <laughs> and it made this. I I remember it made like these <laughs> the sound effects when it would, it would it would like make like a grinding sound effect, and then like this sort of Wilhelm screamy kind of <laughs> sound effects when like infantry units would be marched into it. It mm -hmm. was absolutely ridiculous. Do you remember what the resource gathering unit was for Yuri? 
like the the minor or whatever i don't uh it was i know it was like the chrono minor for the u.s and then there's mm -hmm. like a mining half track thing for the so what was the for for yuri it was like i don't want to say it was like a bus but it was just like some some vehicle that would drive out towards the uh the resource gathering area and then like a bunch of random guys would just get at it like oh yeah know, and like scoop it with, up like, with shovels yes yeah, and yeah. as you would as you would like drive by them they'd be like please help us <laughs> please let us go <laughs> right right and if you destroy the little truck they like you set them free and yeah. then they would fight for you <laughs> yeah that's fantastic i i uh, forgot all about that 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 is an even better reason for me to like that game uh, I had forgotten about the campy cutscenes, though. That's uh... yeah. No, I mean it was oh, so man. so campy, but it's just so ridiculously enjoyable. I mm -hmm. think they knew exactly what they were doing by, oh, yeah. by making it the way that they did. I wonder. It makes me wonder what those actors are doing these days. But uh... <laughs> you know, I that's a great question, and we'll we'll follow that up in the next episode. Sure. But uh, <laughs> since we since we both had uh, that, what is your uh, third choice then I guess alright so my third choice is another kind of top down strategy type game but instead of being a real time strategy for you know battles and stuff this one is for Roller Coaster Tycoon Loopy okay. Landscapes alright um, so I loved playing Roller Coaster Tycoon back in the day and uh, I even even in like college I managed to uh, you know get a boot camp partition on my on my Mac so I could play more roller coaster tycoon because um, <laughs> I still wanted to play, um, but the idea behind roller coaster tycoon, if you've been living under a rock, is that you are more or less given um, some some terrain uh, and an empty theme park, and your goal is to build roller coasters, build rides, build paths, and food stands, and all kinds of stuff, and make an awesome theme park and make lots of money, and that's a great formula and it works really really well. Um, the expansion pack um, made it a little more interesting because instead of having you know kind of a blank slate that you just try to fill up a park and make it as big as you can um, it introduced or introduced some different gameplay mechanics like there were a couple of parks where money didn't exist and you could build as big as you want and as many roller coasters as you want, um, but there were other restraints. So you had to get lots and lots of people, and you couldn't um, have a low park rating. Or there were other scenarios where you just had to get the highest monthly profit you possibly could. Or they would start you with some roller coasters that were not finished, and you had to finish them and get at least a certain rating on them. Or... Um, there were at least a couple of parks that were really weirdly shaped, like they were very, very long and thin, or really, really tiny or whatever. It just, um, it took a really fun game and uh, gave a lot of more interesting scenarios that um, kind of broke the, the standard mold of how you would make a park in Roller Coaster Tycoon. Right, and as, as I recall, uh, I, you know, all of those modes notwithstanding, I think my favorite thing and i hadn't played roller coaster tycoon in quite some time but my favorite thing to do with roller coaster tycoon was try and create the most dangerous roller coaster possible mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i think a lot of people have done that as well uh that was a big that was a big part of it uh like, yeah how fast can i take that turn 100 right. miles an hour sure why not yeah i mean these people are barely strapped in and there's <laughs> five loops in a row but there i mean there are people who have gotten actually very seriously into designing elaborate ways to 
almost kill everyone on the ride and then right at the end kill them you know <laughs> like go as long as you can without killing them and then right at the end just that's that's when it hits the you know <laughs> proverbial brick wall mm-hmm. yeah so that that's a fun game i haven't played that and i can't remember if i played the expansion to that but i had that on my mm. windows 98 computer mm-hmm. uh, at my uh, growing up in like uh middle school high school era man yeah. that was that was really something um yeah. yeah, I think I had it on a Windows 95 computer back in the day. Man. Oof. Uh, well, uh, let's keep the uh, Yeah, before I feel too old. train rolling here. Uh, my choice, I guess my, what is this, my second choice? Yeah, is uh, Half-Life 2. And then I, I put these together because I think they both go together. You can't have one without the other. Well, I guess you could have the first one, but yeah in any rate half life mm-hmm. 2 episodes 1 and 2 mm-hmm. uh and many 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 great games have been made from half life from the source engine uh from half life 2 in particular with the source engine and and i mean everything from Gary's mod and all of the other games that have come out of that like rust and uh you know i everything can kind of be tracked back to being able to screw around with Gary's mod and do things like <laughs> prop hunt and trouble in terrorist town and a lot of things that a lot of Twitch streamers like to play. Uh, and obviously, you know, big games now that are kind of become these huge esports games like player unknown battlegrounds and stuff like that. But, um, for me, the, the, the first two, uh, episodes, the only two so far, fingers crossed, uh, <laughs> episodes of, uh, half life DLC. Uh, well, it wasn't DLC. I guess they were, kind of standalone expansions um really did a great job of continuing the story of half-life 2 and added a lot to it uh and tied it up to a certain extent but you know there there are questions that never really answered but they introduced new enemies like the hunters and uh really brought back in you know great characters and of course half-life 2 ended with what is quite possibly the most frustrating ending battle (laughs) <laughs> of any game where you have to defeat the combine tripods with these weird like mine things that you launch from the gravity gun it's just absolutely ridiculously hard but i think that these were two of the the best games and they really did a great job um of making up for the fact that in the first game they really didn't have a whole lot of interplay between um Gordon Freeman and Alex Vance and i think Alex Vance kind of became a very important character in episodes one and two, uh, in terms of being sort of the uh, the second character. I mean, obviously, you play as Gordon Freeman, and Gordon Freeman really isn't a character aside from the fact that you're playing as him. Uh, but Alex Vance really that character was brought into a lot more uh, quality in in the story in episodes one and two, and I mean, it, it, yeah. I, I think that they did a great job of really, really bringing the story into uh, a lot more um, interesting uh, light. Does yeah. that make sense? Well, yeah, and and I'm actually gonna I'm gonna have to give a deep confession here. Um, I have never I've never actually even finished Half Life Two, um, much oh. less played the uh, the episodes. So. Yeah. 
your your description has made me uh, wa- uh I, I can't imagine that they're terribly expensive on Steam these no. days. So maybe I, I'll I, uh, you could probably you could probably send uh send a message to them and they would just give them to you, you know, like, <laughs> hey, I never got around to finishing these. Oh, oh come on, man, and they just send you a download <laughs> code. Um <laughs> you know the the one thing I will say, the interesting thing about Half Life Two and episodes one and two is that at no point do you ever hear Gordon Freeman talk. He grunts occasionally, makes sounds, you know, when he gets hit and stuff like that. But you mm-hmm. never hear Gordon Freeman talk. And it's almost as if you are just a camera with a gun and a crowbar <laughs> and all of these other characters with excellent voice acting um, are, you know, playing these these roles and creating this story in front of you. And it, it's really fascinating. It's, it's unlike a lot of other science fiction video game stories. It's not something as simple as just, you know, space aliens invading the, the world. I mean, there's interdimensional enemies and that we know nothing about and and uh, transhuman uh overtones in terms of the combine you know police and and soldiers and things like that and it really just the visual uh design of of half-life 2 is great but episodes one and two i think took that visual design and really drove it to another level that i i really appreciated um, the only knock I have against uh, episodes one and two uh, is that uh, Louis Gossett Jr. did not voice the Vortigaunt characters, but yeah, can't, uh, can't beggars can't, can't be choosers. <laughs> uh, and also, there is that is the official uh, episode two was the official point where they confirm that uh, Aperture Science of the Portal series, another great game built in the Source Engine and Portal mm-hmm. Two. That that aperture science is uh, a part of the universe of Half Life, and it mm-hmm. was very much a competitor of Black Mesa, and they obviously that becomes a running gag through uh, uh, Portal and Portal Two, especially. Yeah, I think I saw. I remember seeing uh, in Portal, was it Portal or Portal Two? Might have been Portal Two, where you can see like a a, a slideshow in the background, and there. Are it's, it's it's talking about Black Mesa's technology and why it's better or whatever. And, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, 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 there are a lot of, of little nods and, and kind of meta commentary between the two games that I think, uh, you know, it's it's really funny. And Half-Life, I mean, uh, Portal 2 uh, is definitely a hilariously fun game to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, I would say after you go back and finish, uh, you know, Half-Life 2 and then play episodes one and two we can go back to playing portal two but definitely go and do that oh yeah that was that was some fun co-op yeah yeah we should do that again sometime maybe we should do like a twitch stream or something i don't know Ooh, that's a that's a thought Hmm. twitch streaming portal two (laughs) co-op let us know in the comments or on twitter or facebook if you'd like to see lucas and i playing uh portal two uh twitch stream co-op yeah and now i just saw some guy uh streaming uh, who finished Portal Two co-op um, by himself huh. with you know two hands, two controllers, two hands doing and, the, uh, wow. was he stre- and he was streaming this on Twitch. Yeah, uh, this was part of the um, the uh, AGDQ um, oh, okay. you know charity drive thing. Yeah, yeah, and it was a uh, it was pretty impressive. There was a lot of um, you know moving one character, then switching back and moving another one. Um, but there was a couple of things that they had to coordinate pretty pretty well, and those were. 
Well, those were tricky when we had two people uh, with four hands total, and I don't know right. how we yeah. did it solo. Yeah, but. yeah, that took us. So there were a lot of there was a lot of head scratching and a lot mm-hmm. of. Uh, uh, a lot of um, your wife making sure that we weren't uh, having brain aneurysms sitting on the couch <laughs> playing this, uh, but uh, that was a lot of fun. We should we should revisit mm-hmm. that. But uh, I think we yeah. have. Uh, if you have one more, I think we might have time for it. Ooh, okay. So, mm, all right. So I will. I I have two that I'm trying to decide between. One I will just mention quickly: um, Civ Five, Gods and Kings, and Brave New World. Oh yeah. Um, those to me are less uh, DLC and more completion of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Because so much good stuff came in those two DLC um, packs that it's uh, Civ Five wasn't really done until those two DLC packs came out. Yeah. Um, but the other one that I want to talk about is also kind of a standalone expansion, um, and it's a game that I have um, <laughs> a game series that I've gotten a little bit of ridicule for playing because I they're ridiculous, but I think they're fun, ridiculous, and it's uh, the Saints Row series. Um, and they, uh, the most recent entry in that, uh, series is called Gad Out of Hell. Uh-huh. And the concept is that after the events of the fourth game in the series, um, the, the boss of the saints, which is this street gang turned superhero club. Anyway, they, uh, the boss gets, um, pulled into the underworld and his buddy, Johnny Gat and another person named Kinsey both go after him um, and they go to hell and the whole point of the game is to kind of play like a, a Saints Row which is kind of a knockoff of uh, Grand Theft Auto and you play this sort of uh, you know street gang type game um, in the streets of hell huh. it's ridiculous it's um, hilarious uh, kind of disturbing at some points um, but uh, yeah, you in the end you uh, shoot the devil in the face, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I, you know, say what you will about those games. I have always enjoyed the ridiculousness of them, uh, mm-hmm. and I have not. I, I played a little bit of Saints Row Four. I did not play Saints Row the Fifth or anything like that. But that they're so campy and ridiculous and over the top and the amount of violence and just the themes are so mm-hmm. ridiculous. I mean, aliens and all it's going back in time. It's just, there's a lot to it that is just mm-hmm. absolutely ridiculous F- coming from a game that initially that series was like more of a gritty real world knockoff of GTA yeah. and has gone a completely opposite direction <laughs> Uh, about as far at, in the opposite direction as you can possibly go uh, yeah. in terms of like r- realism, which is s- not saying something because GTA is definitely not realistic. Mm-hmm. Well, it's almost like they said, you know, it, I think the Grand Theft Auto series, at least I think Grand Theft Auto 4, I want to say, that was around the time that everything was going gritty realism. Like, right. I think that's when like uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare came out and everything yeah. is gray and dirty and dark and you know gritty and realism whether meanwhile the characters in a, in the uh contemporary or the uh the the Saints Row game at the time were bludgeoning each other with um adult implements um uh-huh. giant and, uh, purple adult yeah. implements and uh, uh and it's just wacky crazy fun right and yeah, absolutely not for it, kids not for kids let's, let's oh, make no. that perfectly perfectly clear this is not oh, no. uh it has not gone in the opposite direction of GTA in terms of being family friendly. It is certainly not, but certainly it is not. a lot of fun. Yeah, I I think um, 
yeah, it uh, it basically it, it's the it's the wackiness of the series. I, I mean, the fact that the end of the game you shoot the devil in the face and that's what that's how you win the game. That I, I mean, come on, right? It's like uh, that's that's about as good as it gets. It is about as good as it gets. <laughs> and on that note, we will wrap it up on on this. I think this might have to be the first of maybe a series of episodes throughout the course of this podcast where maybe we talk about our favorite things of a certain uh, genre. So maybe mm-hmm. we can bring back uh, expansion packs uh, at some point because I, I think we both maybe had a couple more that we wanted to talk about, but just mm-hmm. not enough time to uh, do that. But um, if you have a favorite video game expansion pack or downloadable content, uh, leave us a comment in the uh, Twitter uh, or Facebook posts or on the uh, posts on our website uh, with the show notes. And we'll continue the discussion as to uh, our favorite uh, expansion packs. Maybe even talk a little bit more about those on our website and stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, like I said, if you want to see uh, Lucas and I get on Twitch and make fools out of ourselves trying to play Portal 2 <laughs> co-op, uh, we might be able to do that. Uh, just let us know if that's something you'd like to watch. Maybe we'll we'll, we'll uh, make that a, a, a Patreon. Uh, no, we're not going to do that. You, everybody uh, should yeah. be able to watch that. That's going to be fun uh, if we do <laughs> it. But uh, yeah, uh, leave us a comment. Like, subscribe, go to iTunes, Google Play, uh, search for Science and or Fiction Podcast. You can find us on Twitter. We are at CyAndorFi, and on Facebook, we are Facebook.com forward slash CyAndorFi. We have a YouTube channel with nothing on it yet, so if you want to go there and subscribe, you can, and you'll see it when we come up with it. But uh, in the meantime, go to scienceandorfiction.com to check out past episodes of the CyAndorFi Podcast. For episode six... I am Taylor Sloan. And I'm Lucas Moore. We'll talk to you next time.